This is the Christian Life Center podcast. Here at CLC, we are messengers of hope, where we believe in taking God's message of hope everywhere we go to everyone we meet. From wherever you are, be encouraged by this week's message. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. Aren't you glad that you're worshiping the Lord today? We want to welcome all of our online family. Thank you for joining us. You know, every week when I do different hospital visitations, I always run into our medical professionals that are working in hospitals. And many times they'll say, Pastor, we can only come every other week. I can't go through an airport now and walk through an airport and not run into members of our congregation. Same thing, pastor, every other week we're working, but when we're not in the building, we're watching online and we're joining you. And so we want to welcome our online family, those that are in the house. Come on, put your hands together. We love you online family and we're so thankful. Maybe you don't live in South Florida. Maybe you live in another part of the country or maybe even overseas. We're thankful that CLC is a part of your weekend worship experience. You know, in times like this, in times of revival, the desperation of the body of Christ begins to cry out. And in our hunger, in our in our anticipation, in our longing for Him and knocking, asking, seeking, tarrying, soaking in the presence of God. In our desperation, God begins to pour out His Spirit. And you can't help but feel it when you're in the presence of God. God begins to send a revival and an awakening to His body and to those that are around. You know, a few weeks ago in our revival, we talked about that revival is really for the house of God for the people of God, for the children of God. It's to awaken and to stir something in God's people. And when God's people get stirred and revival takes place, you're reviving something that's gotten cold or apathetic. You're reviving something that's lost its life. It's, it's lost its passion and its fervor. It's, it's lost its zeal. You're reviving it. And when you do, there is something that begins to happen because then we, the church, become the ones that take that message, that message of hope everywhere we go to, everyone we meet, and it leads to an awakening an awakening around us. And that's what we're believing for, praying for, continuing to press for, making room for, is that God would revive us and that it would lead to an awakening all around us. Can I just get a praise in the house today? As we were praying and preparing, we begin to really believe that the Lord in this time is continuing to speak to us. And what I know is that when revival comes, there's some choices that we make. Can I just get an agreement? And when we make some choices, they come out of our times with God, our revival of, of being renewed and, and revived by the Spirit of God. And we make choices. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of these choices. Paul leads us to them and Paul shows them to us. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be walking through the book of Philippians. I've titled this, this whole series over the next few weeks, I Choose. Say, I Choose. Because Paul's going to show us that when revival hits your heart, when it hits your home, when it hits the church, there's choices that we make. It's not just what we get, but it's a choice that we make. And those choices will lead us and guide us. So, Father, as we open your word, we know that your word is anointed. It's powerful. 
And today I pray that you will speak through it to our hearts and to our lives, to us as a church, and that, God, you would be glorified. You would be exalted. That, Father, we, the people of God, are choosing, we're choosing to walk in you, to embrace your purposes, to walk in your will, to live by your word. We choose it today. When revival hits our hearts and our homes, there's choices that we make. And today we make that choice. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Today Paul's going to help us. Philippians chapter 1 is where I'm at. And man, I hope you're a note taker. I, I hope that you download our outline, that those that are in the house, that you take your outline, you circle and you underline, because it really is rich when we can dig deep into God's word. This week, we're looking at, and Paul's going to show us the choice. When revival hits your heart, there's a choice, and that choice is that we choose joy. Say, I choose joy. Say it louder for me. I choose joy. Somebody online, type it. I choose joy. Now, the reality is many people don't enjoy life. They just endure it. In fact, to them... They don't understand that there is a difference between happiness and joy. You see, we think if everything is perfect, then we're going to be joyful and happy. But the reality is there is a big difference between happiness and joy. You see, your happiness is determined by the situations of your life, the circumstances of your life. And you and I have to learn to be joyful in every situation. No matter what's happening, if it's good or bad, we're going to learn in that situation that regardless of the problems that are there, we are going to be joyful. In fact, happiness comes from the word happenstance is where we got our word circumstance, meaning that if things are happening good, everything's great around us, the circumstance and the happenstances of our life are good, then we're happy. It's perfect. But joy is something that's very different because joy is internal. Happiness is external, but joy is internal. And joy then becomes constant regardless of what's happening around us. How do you have happiness in spite of what you're going through is what we're going to look at today. The key Paul is going to show us in Philippians that joy is learning to interpret my circumstances to interpret what's happening so that my perspective is accurate and my perspective then interpret, you know, it, it interprets my circumstances and I find myself living in joy regardless of what's happening around me. The problem around you and I, though, is often our circumstances determine our perspective. So Paul's going to show us, and he's going to give us a look today that there's a choice. I choose joy, and when we choose joy, we find ourselves interpreting our circumstances and yet walking still within joy. It's a powerful word. It's a mature word. It's not a word for the immature today spiritually. The spiritually immature link their joy to their happenstances, their circumstances. And Paul's going to show us that that is not accurate. So today, as we begin to look in here, we're going to begin to see that we develop this perspective that's going to transcend our circumstances, and it's going to help us. 
And so as we turn to Philippians, I'm going to begin in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to walk through Philippians 1, and, and, and if time allows us, we're going to cover several parts of it because Paul helps us in this whole chapter to understand what I've introduced to you today. Today, we're going to look at some keys, keys to joy. And the first key we're going to find is going to be found in verse 3. Now, before I begin to read verse 3 to you, let me tell you that Paul's going to show us that the first key really is our focus, and our focus has to do with what do you focus on? Do you focus on the circumstances, or are you focusing on something that is far greater than that? So before I read it, I've got to help you to understand the, the, the circumstances around Paul. And therefore, when Paul says the first key to joy is your focus and what you focus on, you've got to understand when he's writing it and the circumstances around him when he writes this. The book of Philippians that we're looking at here was written around A.D. 60 to 63. Paul is in prison when he's writing this. This is called one of the prison epistles. He writes Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and, and, and Philemon while he's in prison. The, back, the backdrop or the backstory, the history of this scripture in Philippians here is that Paul, as he's writing it, Paul is understanding that there are things that go beyond his circumstance. Because the story is that for the last four years, Paul has been in miserable circumstances. He spends two years in the prison of Caesarea for, for charges that were fabricated and made up. He's sent to prison, and while he's there, they're going to send him to Rome so that he can go on trial there in Rome. So they put him on a boat, and they ship him off to go to Rome. The accusers are also going to go to Rome and meet him there, and they're going to go be before Nero. Now, Nero was not nice. He didn't have niceties towards believers and Christians. And on his way to meet Nero and, and Nero and to, and to go to, to, to Rome, he... Uh, gets into a shipwreck. The shipwreck causes them to abandon the ship. They get stranded on an island. While on that island, if you remember from the book of Acts, he's bitten by a poisonous snake, and he has to spend the whole winter there. Candy and I have gone to that island. We've been there, and in the winter time, we went in the dead of winter. It's a very, very cold place. And so when he makes reference to the fact that he had to stay there the whole winter, it was because he would not have had much possessions at all. He had been shipwrecked. He was a prisoner going to Rome after two years in prison in Caesarea. And now he's stranded on the island waiting to get through the winter so that he could continue on his journey to Rome. While he gets to Rome, he's awaiting his execution. He's, he's awaiting the, 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 the trial that will come, but they're waiting for the witnesses that, to, to, to make their way, and he, he spends two more years in prison in Rome. Now, the Bible will tell us in Acts 16 and 15, 16, 17 there that he is chained to guards 24 hours a day. Absolutely no privacy. Every four hours, there would be a guard change, and he would get a new guard that was chained to him for those next four hours. And yet, in spite of this, Paul's going to make a declaration here in Philippians chapter 1 that I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. Can I just get an agreement in the Spirit? 
in prison, he understood what revival does and what an awakening will do. And he had a perspective that gone, that went far beyond his circumstances. What was his secret? What was his pause? Uh, his, his, what was the, the, the thing that enabled him to stay positive in prison? What was it that enabled him to triumph over his troubles and to delight in the midst of his difficulties is that he learned on what to focus. Say focus. See, when we get ready to read here in a moment, you're going to see Paul's focus was upward and outward. It was never inward. Say it with me. Paul's focus was upward and outward, and it was never inward. And by the way, that is a mark of a spiritually mature believer. You can spot spiritual immaturity when their focus is inward. When their focus is on what they want, what they need, what they desire, what should happen for them. But when we begin to get a different perspective because of our focus is on him, we begin to focus upward to God. And when we focus upward, we looked into Isaiah, it enables us to begin to look outward because something is happening and it's transforming us. And so his focus and the joy that God desires you and I to walk in will come back to your focus. Let's look here. Verse three. I thank my God. I thank my God every time I remember you. If I could stop there for a moment, he's saying, I thank my God. You see, the focus for him was a focus of gratitude. It was a focus of being grateful for those that was in his life, grateful for what God was doing in his life. And he has a thankful heart. Where is his focus? His focus was on thanking God, not only for what God was going to do, but he was thanking God for those that were in his life. You see, Paul realized that he's not alone in the faith. And you got to realize that because when you're in the depth of spiritual warfare and you're in the middle of a spiritual battle and when you have fallen and you have been knocked out for some reason, something's happened, you feel like you're all alone, don't you? feel like you're walking through a storm by yourself. You feel like there's nobody there that understands that are with you. And Paul, in the middle of prison, after being there four years, two years in Rome, he says, I thank God, speaking to the church of Philippi, so they're not there, they're not in Rome, it's the church in Philippi that he helped to plant, and he says, I thank God every time I remember you. He remembered those that were in his life. He remembered those that were there. I have to stop and say, God, help us to focus on those that you've placed into our life. Help us to focus on what matters most. Let us have a heart of gratitude. Can I hear an amen in the house? You see, if you go back to Acts chapter 16, when Paul started the church in Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, it was a very difficult time for Paul. It was a difficult time. He had been, uh, he, he, uh, he had been arrested illegally these trumped up charges. He was humiliated. He was thrown into prison. While in prison, there was an earthquake. And as he comes out of prison, he's actually kicked out of town. And now he's writing back to the church of Philippi. And he says, I thank God every time I remember you. Not, oh, I remember how hard it was. I remember how difficult it was to start the church there. And I remember all the difficulties that we had. No, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. 
when I think of you. He didn't dwell on the negative. He dwelt on those that were in his life. And he says here, in all of my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy. Now, as I read that, it really jumped out to me because he says, in all of my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy. It's another mark of the spiritually mature that in our prayers, there's intentionality in our prayers. And he says, I always pray with joy. Now, think about it for a minute. Have you ever really thought about what do you pray for when you pray for other people? When you tell somebody, oh, I'll pray for you. We're praying for you. I'll remember you in my prayer. What do you pray? What should we pray? What's amazing about this is Paul's going to show us, if we go down to verse nine, we're in verse four, but if we go down to verse nine, he goes on to give us what we should pray when we're praying for those that we remember that God has brought into our life. And he says, this is my prayer. When I remember you and in all of my prayers, you can circle those things, this is my prayer. And he's going to go on to share four things. And these are four things that you can do when you're praying for other people that are in your life. He says, I pray that your love may abound. He says it abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight and, 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 and that you may be able, secondly, to discern, there should be a space there, discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. He goes on to say, filled with the fruit of what? Righteousness. I'm gonna unpack this in a moment. And the, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So how do you pray for other people? If we go back uh, up to verse nine, what Paul says is, first of all, you pray, you pray that they may abound in love that you will abound, that your love may abound more and more, that you would grow in your love. Now, first of all, that's an agape love, that you learn to love one another, that you learn to have a sacrificial love, that when I'm praying for those that are in my life and I'm praying for you and you're praying for your children and you're praying for your spouse and you're praying for the body of Christ, you're praying that they would grow, first of all, in their love for God but secondly, in a love for one another, in an agape love, and that it would abound over and over. It's a tidal wave. It's overflowing over and over in their life. So you start by praying that they would learn to love God and they would have an agape sacrificial love. But then he goes on to say, not only that, secondly, in the next verse, he says that you will, may, that you will be able to discern what is best so what do I pray secondly for people is I'm praying that they would learn to discern. What is that in our words today is that they would learn to make wise choices. Now, all the parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about, amen? When you're praying for your children, you're praying that they would learn to love God, that there would be a sacrificial love. But I'm also praying secondly, when you pray for one another, you're praying that they would make wise choices that they would discern what is best. And what is best is God's will. So they would learn to know God's will. They can't know God's will if they don't know God. And that goes back up to the first point, that they would overflow with love, but that then they would make wise 
choices. They would discern what is best. And he goes on to say, and that they would be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Two points are there. That third, I pray for people that they will do what is right. That they would be pure and blameless. That they would have a clear conscience. That there would be the character of Christ. So when you're praying for people, when you're praying for your children, your spouse, and those that are around you, begin to pray that God would enable them to be pure and blameless. And that means that they do what is right. Can I get an agreement? Are you with me? How do you target your prayer? that they would be discerning, that they would overflow with love, that they would do what is right. Now, what I've learned in this area from my own life, and I've got to apply it when I'm praying for others for their life, is a part of this prayer, doing what is right, is learning to overcome temptation. Because I can't do what's right, and I can't be pure, pure and blameless if I always give in to temptation. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And I know that the Bible says that there's a way of escape and that I can escape temptation. And therefore, I'm praying, God, help me get through. Help me get through this. Help me push through it. Help me find the way within my will to get out of this temptation that I'm in so that I can do what's pure and blameless before you. But now when I'm praying for others, I'm praying for my children and I'm praying for my my, my spouse or those that are around me. I'm praying that they would overcome temptation. And then he goes on to say, pure and blameless to the day of the Lord, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That they would be overflowing with the glory of God, the fruit of righteousness, that they would not be attracted to the things of the world and that they would walk in obedience to the will of God. So Paul is showing us that the first key to joy in your life is what you focus on. And he's saying, I'm praying for you and I lift you up in my prayers and I'm thankful and the focus was right there. If you will allow your heart to focus in on what God is saying, I guarantee you what he's praying for the church in Philippi, if you apply it to your own heart, God will help you. He takes us into the second key The second key, and it's found in verse 12. Let me read verse 12 to you first. And verse 12 is going to show us the second key of choosing joy. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, he's writing to the believers in Philippi. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really, you got to underline, this is so good. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ because of my chains. Now go back to my introduction. Many link their happiness to their circumstances. But Paul is saying, though, there's a joy that goes beyond my circumstances. And he says, because of my chains, my circumstances, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and what? Fearlessly. See, Paul, secondly, and it's the second key to joy. I choose joy. It's the second key is Paul had a perspective that he lived from. Now, you got to get that in your heart. You may want to write it the way I just said it. He had a perspective that he lived from. How well do you handle the things that happen in your life? 
How well do you look at these circumstances and these issues that are happening in your life? You see, what Paul was saying is powerful for mature believers today. Because there's one thing that we all have in common. Turn to your neighbor, say, we, we have something in common. We all have something in common today. And you wanna know what it is? It's problems. We all have some kind of problem. Am I right? Your problems are not so important, really. What's really important is how are you looking at those problems? So you may look at the problem, and as you look at it, you're, you're thinking that this is so important in my life. But what really makes the difference is your perspective. See, a second key to joy is perspective. The first is what you focus on, and if you keep focusing on it, it's different than perspective, though. When you begin to think about perspective, it really begins to help you to understand what Paul is saying here. Now, let me rewind. Let me, let me take you back again to our introduction, and that was Paul was in some very, very dark circumstances. Now, Paul always wanted to go to Rome. He writes about it. He talks about it. He had an intention to go to Rome. That was always his plan. Now, why he wanted to go to Rome is he wanted to have a great crusade in the, in the capital of the whole region, and he wanted to preach the gospel and see hundreds and thousands get saved, like the revival in Samaria and other revivals that he had in other cities. His plan, take me what I'm saying again. Are you with me today? I know the online's with me, but I want to feel my, my in-person, right? His plan, and this is so important because his plan was to go to Rome. Where is he? He's in Rome. His plan was to go to Rome, and he's in Rome, but what he thought was going to happen in going to Rome was to have a crusade. And instead, God did what? God had him in prison. Now, while he's in prison, he's going to write, come back to perspective, he's going to write about two-thirds of the New Testament. Now, if he would have been doing crusades, I can tell you, if you're traveling around, you're preaching, you're doing crusades, you're ministering to people, that's exciting in the moment, but he would have never had the time to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Now, we can look back and we say, praise God, thank you, Paul, thank you that you went through prison, thank you that you were there. And boy, we spend one day in prison, prison cell, right, of life, and we feel like, God, what's going on? Did you not remember the visions and the dreams? Did you not remember what I've prayed for? Did you not remember what I was hoping was going to happen? And it's all a matter of perspective. You see, what was happening, I gotta just unpack it historically, is there he was in prison, he's writing. But you remember I said every four hours, there was a change of the guard. Nonstop, 24 hours, he's chained for two years to a guard. Those guards would have been the highest level of the, 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 the army of the, of that day. They were like the special forces for the, the empire. In fact, they only had to serve 12 years, and after 12 years, they could retire. And when they would retire, they would retire wealthy, wealthy in positions of honor, and, and, and they would be very respected in life at this time because of what they had to do. 
And you see, Paul, he had a plan to go to Rome, but his plan was to preach a crusade, and God was going to use him to bring many souls to the Lord, but God had a different plan that he was going to bring, and God needed to change Paul's perspective in it. So Paul was in prison, and as he's in prison, Nero was paying the bills. He's chained to, to, to all of these guards. One of them would have became the future leader of Rome, and every four hours, there's a change of the guard. If you were to multiply that out, four-hour shifts for two years, that would have been 4,380 different guards. Now, you would have said, well, maybe he had one guard more than once. He might have, but it said, historically, there are 16,000 guards that would have been a part of Nero's army. And so let's just say 4,380 guards that he's changed to every four hours. He's writing the New Testament. Can you imagine if you've ever done any writing or you're deep in Bible study, you're, re you're receiving downloads from God. All of a sudden, I can see Paul is writing and he's talking it out loud. Writers begin to talk it out loud. They're writing it down and oh, yes, Lord, that is good. Now there's a guard changed to him that's in the highest palace of Nero and Paul is writing it. I've been in that prison cell in Rome, by the way. It's like the, it's like the small stage right here. It's like a big cave. And in that big cave, it would have been lowered down by some kind of rope system into it. There was no way anybody was getting out. He was there. And every day, every four hours, there was a new guard that was there that was going to hear the testimony. And what we read a moment ago is that Paul says that many in the prison guard have heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. Many have heard to the fact that they would take it back to the palace and they would be in to testify. They gave their hearts to the Lord. In fact, history tells us that Nero executed his wife and his children, his children, because they were believers of Jesus Christ. Now, where did they become believers of Jesus Christ? Is there was a guard that was chained to him as he was writing that New Testament. There was a word that was going out and it was a matter of perspective because God was working in the problem even if he didn't know why. God was doing it, even though he was wondering, God, why am I not preaching a crusade somewhere? God was using him, and it was a matter of perspective. I'm telling you, church, one of the great sins, hear me. We're talking about revival, yes. We're talking about revival. You're talking about God, glory coming, yes. We're talking about miracles, yes. But we got to choose joy before that happens. The great sin of Israel was a sin of murmuring and complaining. God was exceedingly angry with Israel. Why? They didn't choose joy. They looked at their circumstances always. They didn't have a perspective of what God was doing. Their focus was on their circumstances instead of on God who was going to see them through their circumstances. They murmured and they complained. They questioned God and they asked why. They whined and whined and whined. And what God is saying to you and I is it's a matter of perspective. Look at verse 14 with me. Verse 14, because of my chains... Most of the brothers in the Lord have also been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So he's saying, because of my circumstances, it inspired other believers. Because of my difficulties, 
the gospel went forward. In fact, Paul says, I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. When he talks about those chains in the Greek there, it goes into a deep study of understanding that he is saying, I am chained to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm chained to a guard, but the greater chain for me is a chain to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, I am his ambassador. I am his, I am his messenger of hope. And therefore, I preach the gospel in the difficulties of what I'm going through. I'm asking God, God, how do you want to use this difficulty? How are you going to use my story? God, what are you going to do? It may not be the next New Testament, but it may be a new book that's coming out. It may be a story that you're going to share some to somebody. It may be a healing or a breakthrough or a story of what God is going to use to, to elevate the glory of God in your life and in your mix. And he says there was courage, courage, that they were fearless in their life. And courage is contagious. It spreads like wildfire. And other believers became bold because of Paul and what Paul was doing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we give him praise? That's where we can look back to Romans 8, 28, where Paul would write, I know that all things will work for the good of those who love him. Not that all things are good, but that all things will Work for the good of the, for those who love him. So what's the lesson that we can walk away with is that God has a purpose between, uh, behind all of my problems. There is a purpose behind it and God's going to use it in my life, right? God's going to use adversarial things and conflict and situations and, and circumstances. And therefore I'm not going to let it get me down. I'm not going to let it defeat me. It's a test for me because I'm a child of God. And as a child of God, I declare I declare that he is in control. He will strengthen. He will endure. He will give you an eternal hope. There's a testimony that's coming. It's going to stir others that are around you because I choose joy. I choose joy. So key number one, Paul says, is your focus. What are you focusing on? Key number two, though, is perspective, which leads us to key number three. It's found in verse 14. Because of my chains, we read it, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, perspective. He's come to realize I am on mission. You don't like where you work? Well, God may change it, but until he changes it, realize you're on mission. Realize that you have a purpose. You're walking through pain. You're walking through difficulty. You need a breakthrough in an area of your life. It may come, but realize you are on mission. There is perspective and purpose. The later do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely. Supposing that they can stir up trouble for me well, I'm in chains. Let me pause and just say what's happening. Historically here, 
is there were some that were jealous and envious of Paul. And so while he was in prison, they're actually using it to stir up trouble and to speak against him and, and to try to turn his followers away from him. And he says, I realize what's going on. They're stirring up this trouble for me while I am in chains. He goes on to say, but what, say that with me, but what does it matter? Now, I love that because it's perspective. What does it matter? A number of years ago, I started asking myself, will this matter 25 years from now? Will this matter 100 years from now? When I don't know which way to go in a decision, right or left, every now and then the thoughts will come to my mind, what matters 25 years from now? What matters when I'm gone? What matters when I move on? What matters in my life in this decision? And Paul says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, now here's the point. Here's the third key. Because of this, I rejoice. Yes, he's emphasizing yes, and I will continue to rejoice. The third key is that Paul says there's a hope that goes beyond this world. There's a purpose, and my perspective comes to understanding that yes, when I focus on God and the things of God, I begin to get a perspective that's from God, and I begin to thirdly realize that there is something that's beyond this world 25 years, 50 years, 100 years, a 1,000 years from now, there is something that is far greater, and it's a hope, the hope of glory, and the hope of eternity, and the hope of what's gonna really matter, and that is what I choose to focus on. So the third key is that there is a hope. Paul is determined that nothing's going to steal my joy. Nothing's going to steal my joy. And church, when revival hits you, all of a sudden your perspective is changed because your focus is changed. And all of a sudden when revival hits your heart, there is an eternal focus. And that focus is an eternal hope. We call it the blessed hope that drives you. And you're determined nothing will steal my joy. Politics, politicians, health, sickness, finances, nothing will steal my joy. I hope when you leave today, you leave today saying, I choose joy. When you go back to work tomorrow, you're sitting at your desk, just remind yourself, I choose joy. Now, I just had a staff member laugh over here. <laughs> I hope it's not that bad, <laughs> but that's okay. I choose joy. He said their motives may be wrong. I choose joy. Their style may not be what I like. I choose joy. I, joy is my choice because he says the message is getting out. So what? Christ is being preached. So what? Man, when you come through the book of Philippians, when you look at it, Paul is saying, so what? When you look at it, there's only one question that keeps coming up over and over and over again, and that is, what's going to last for eternity? 25 years from now, 50, 100, 1,000 years from now, what is going to matter? 
I love this word, so what, in the, in the, in the original, so what, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether false motives are true, Christ is being preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice in this idea. What does it matter? So what? Paul is saying, that he had set his priorities and his values and that nothing was going to steal his joy. See, he had a priority that he was living by and it was a priority of eternal hope, the blessed hope. Walking through situations, praying for breakthrough, praying for your children, praying for marriage, praying for your job, praying for so many different areas in your life. It hasn't come to pass yet. It's okay, it's not stealing my joy because my joy is focused on an eternal glory, the blessed hope. I have a hope that drives me, that gives me proper perspective, keeps my focus in alignment because there is a hope of something far greater. Are you getting what I'm talking about today? You see, believers are losing their hope. They go through a pandemic and they lost their hope. It wasn't about being safe. They lost their hope. They go through society issues that we're facing. They go through so much that's crushing in on us and they've lost their hope. My question is, if we see him, I just want Jesus. That's all I want. I, I want Jesus. And if my focus is on Jesus and my hope is in Jesus, then these things will not steal my hope. Proverbs 3, 6 says this. Proverbs 3, 6 says, in everything you do. In what? Everything. everything. If you're an underliner, underline it. Everything you do, put God first. You put God first in everything. And he will do what? He will direct you. We're going to sing that song in a moment. We're going to sing that song in a moment. One more time. And man, it's bringing us back. As if you put God first in everything, he will direct you and then he will crown your efforts with success. See, some of you are trying to find success. You're trying to find happiness by focusing on the wrong things. For some, you're focusing on the possessions of this world, thinking that that's going to give you happiness but what I'm telling you today happiness is not the focus it's joy and success is coming when you focus on him and when that focus is on him perspective has changed you put God first and he will direct you you crown your efforts with success this is what God counts putting God first that's what he that's my, my that's my commentary this is what God's counting, and that is, do we put God first? We put him first. I want to wrap up. I'm going to bring the team out. But to, look with me in verse 19, because I had to give you the last, the last verse here. For I know that through your prayers and through the help, two things helped him. Praying for those that were praying for him and the help of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, what Paul was saying is, I know that I know that I know. I rejoice. I know that I know that I know that deliverance is certain. 
You're walking through a difficult time. Deliverance is certain. How could he have it? Because there was a hope. That hope changed his perspective because it was built off of what he was focusing on. His source was unshakable. It was an unshakable source. I wonder how you would say, how you would answer for me to live. Paul says, if you go on in the scripture, he says, for me to live is to live for Christ and to die is to gain. If we go on, he goes on to say in verse 22, if I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? That's where we got, I choose. What shall I choose? I choose. I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better for, for by far better. We can all say amen. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this. I know that I will remain. He was certain of his deliverance. I know that I will remain. And I know that I will continue with all of you for your progress and for the joy in the faith. So that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on an account for me. The last point that I leave you with today is Paul says, the fourth key is a key, and this is so important. Candy actually led us in prayer for it earlier. And it comes out of this next part of Philippians. Philippians chapter one, verse 27. Look here what he says. For whatever happens, Candy prayed this in her prayer earlier. For whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what's the fourth key, pastor? Well, the fourth P is a key of consistency. If you're going to live and walk in joy, you've got to be consistent. And he's going to go on and show us what do we mean. Look here. Whether I come to you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you will stand firm. See, what is God expecting from you and I? How can you continue to walk in joy? He says, stand firm. Stand firm in your hope. Man, I hope you're getting this today. Stand firm in your hope. Stand firm in your perspectives. Stand firm in what you're focusing on. Stand firm. What he's saying is don't give up. Stand firm. I'm in prison. I'm chained to a guard. I've been in prison four years. I was going to Rome to preach a crusade, but God found me fit to go into a prison cell because he had a greater purpose. And for you and I, it was the writing of the New Testament and for the salvation of the prison guard. And Paul was saying, be consistent. What's the key? Stand firm. Stand firm. The weight of the world is coming down on you. Do what? Stand firm. Don't give up. You see, so many people are saying that they're leaving the faith. They're, they're abandoning their faith. They're walking away. There's all these terms of what they're using. Basically, they're giving up. 
And in giving up, I can tell you, it's a mark of spiritual immaturity. Now, we as a church have got to help them to stand firm. We've got to preach the word. We've got to have time in the presence of God. We've got to build roots that are deep in our faith so that we can stand firm and we don't give up. But what we cannot do for you as church leaders is help you to be consistent. I can't help you to live consistently. I can't help you to live righteously. I can't help you to live pure and blameless. When you leave this church and you go out into the world, you've got to stand firm. You've got to stand on your faith. And he goes on to say, I'm going to come. And when I do, I'm going to hear about you. And in my absence, I will know that you have stood firm. That you stand firm in one spirit. I like it. Here's the second thing contending as one man for the faith of the gospel how do you stand firm and how are you consistent as he says you contend for the faith now contending for the faith is that you're not going to give in you're not going to give in to your convictions you're not going to give in to what you know that you know that you know you're not going to give in knowing what God's will and plan and purpose is in your life it's not just giving up, it's not giving in. How do you live with joy? What will steal your joy faster than anything is you allow sin into your life. What will steal your joy is that you compromise your convictions over and over and over. And that's why he says, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. I'm standing, I'm contending, I'm not giving in. Man, I'm harping on it because it's a maturity mark. The mark of maturity is one contends for the faith. He goes on to say in the next part, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that you will be destroyed. But that you, that you uh, this, sorry, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved and that by God. In the last verse there, he said that they were fearless. How do you live consistently is there's a fearless courageousness that rises up and you don't shrink back. You don't shrink back. Father, as we come to the point of this service in your word, it's a powerful word, it's a lot. It's a whole chapter. It's a whole chapter in the book of Philippians. But we took time because we know, God, we know that revival can't come if we don't choose joy. Revival can't come if we continue to focus on other things than things that are important to you. Revival can't come if we don't have a right perspective. I pray that you'll give us a right perspective. Revival can't come if we don't know what our eternal hope is. Revival can't come if we're not consistent. Revival's not about Sunday, Sunday, Sunday only. Revival is about living out what we experience on Sunday. So God, today, as Paul says, for me to live is to live for Christ. Today, we make a decision that we choose Jesus. That we choose you, God. That we surrender to you and we yield to you. Today, that is our choice. 
And in the final moments of our service, one more time, we make that declaration. If this ministry is making an impact in your life, why not help us make an impact on the lives of others by partnering with us today? You can give through our CLC app or at clcftl.org forward slash give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe for more inspiring messages like this. Now go and be messengers of hope.